please turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, the notes are in the bulletin. This is a psalm that's probably, if any of the psalms are familiar to you, Psalm 139 is probably one of the more familiar psalms, and it's a great and amazing psalm, and I look forward to our study of it. Let's, let's begin by reading the 139th psalm. A psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were None of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 139th Psalm. The title of this morning's message is Practical, the Practical Use of Theology. And I want to address an issue, a question that I think is common to many of us. But to me, it's as common as a recent discussion I had with a friend. We're talking about, and see if you can track with this, that the difficulty of knowing things up here, doctrinal things, truth claims, knowing things of the Bible, things about God, knowing what's true, and yet, emotionally, and the way you live it out, denying it. You know, it's, it's possible with our mouth to praise God and with our actions to curse him. It's, it's possible to say we believe things and yet in practice go and do otherwise. James talks about this danger in, in the second chapter. He says, faith without works is dead. You can bless your brother who's needing food and clothing, but unless you actually help them, no one's fooled into thinking that you actually care for them. And this can be challenging when your heart grows cold, when your affections grow dim, and you know these things are true. I'll give you some examples. You know, we can believe 
that God knows what he's doing and we can grumble about the circumstances in our life. We can believe that God has called us to suffering and all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution and yet we can, we can flee and we can grumble when that comes. And, and we can believe that God is watching over us and the sparrow and we can live in fear. So, so what do you do with truth you know that you're having a hard time experiencing? What do you what do? You do? How, do you, how do you minister to yourself that way? And, and one of the things that's so fascinating, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again about the Psalms, is the Psalms, the book of Psalms that God gave us, and God gave us 150 songs, there's more in the Bible, but 150 here, to sing, to instruct us. And so whereas the rest of the scripture is uniquely God speaking to man, here... God is speaking to man by us watching godly people speaking to God. I'll say that again. In the Psalms, God is speaking to us by showing us, letting us watch godly people speaking to him. And so we've seen, what, is a, what does a spirit-filled person do when they're discouraged? Well, you go to Psalm 42 and 43. How does a spirit-filled person pray about their enemies? You go to Psalm 35. How does a, how does a godly person respond to all these things in life? How would God have us react? And Psalm 139, I think, gives us a, a principle that's is repeated many times in Scripture. How do you take what you know about God, theology, and make it practical? You know, theology can get a bad, a bad rep sometimes. People don't want to be theologians. I got news for you. Every one of you and everyone you know is a theologian. What's the theology? The ology is the, the knowledge or the science of the knowledge of God. Everyone has opinions about God, even the atheist whose opinion is he doesn't exist. Everyone is a theologian. Get that. Everyone's a theologian. Everyone believes things about God. You're a theologian. You have a theology. You may not be aware of your theology. You may not be able to articulate your theology. But if we stood back and looked at your life, we could see what you believe. We could see what you trust. Everyone's a theologian. But the reason I think sometimes theology can get a bad rap, why people can think of it as useless or just something for eggheads, is that there is a danger, and we've seen it, haven't we, of people who know things but don't live things, people who claim to believe things, people who could ace doctrinal tests, and yet their lives betray that. They're, they're bitter, they're grumbling, they're discontent, they're fearful, they're coveting. They're, I mean, that's, that's really the experience of each and every one of us. And in this psalm, we get to see how to take what we know about God and make it practical. God has revealed things about himself for very practical reasons, and it's not just so that we can pass tests in seminary. I want you to notice the subtle shift. One of the things to look for in psalms is the movement. Oftentimes, where the psalmist begins emotionally and mentally is not where he ends. And I want you to notice the capstones of Psalm 139. It begins... With a doctrinal statement, with a statement of fact. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And it ends in verse 23 with a very similar sentence. Search me, O God, and know my heart. But there's a very subtle difference, isn't there? One is simply stating something is true. God knows everything. God has searched me. The other, somehow by the end of the psalm, David is actually inviting this searching. David is actually crying out for this searching. Something's happened in his heart that's taken what he knows is true in verse 1, and now he's, he's engaging it emotionally. His will is engaging it. 
The structure of the psalm it, it helps make this point even more clearly. It breaks down neatly into eight-verse um, strophes or verses. Think of a psalm with four verses. So there's four chunks. And in the first three, he's taking the knowledge of God. In fact, you read some commentaries with the attributes of God, and he, he looks at the, the omniscience of God, and he looks at the omnipresence of God, and he looks at the sovereignty of God in the first three sections. And then the final section is his response, his prayer, his heart response. See, the way God designed us is that when we rehearse and we meditate and we think about truth, it begins to affect our hearts. And we know this from experience. If, if you've ever got a love letter from somebody, you know the experience when you're separated, pulling it out and rereading it again and again, or watching old home videos, especially for those of you who have, who have loved ones who are dead. You, you watch those old home videos, and what does it do? It stirs up your heart by way of remembrance. And again and again in Scripture, we're told to remember, to remember, to remember, to draw to mind, to meditate. It's difficult in a now-this world. The average span on a, on a TV before the next camera angle comes in is three seconds. The commercials come in, now this, now this, now this, with social media, Twitter, Facebook, now this, now this, now this. And it's difficult to hold on to the art of deeply thinking about truth. But that's what David does here. He takes three overlapping attributes, characteristics of God, and he thinks about them deeply. And in doing so, it affects his heart. If you're, if you're struggling with this, and I think we all are at various times, here's a good solution. This is why reading good Christian books, listening to sermons, gathering together with other believers, talking about God is so necessary because it helps us remember and think about who God is. What's interesting is David's not even focusing on what we would call gospel truths about God. He's not focusing on the cross. He's not focusing on redemption. We saw that last week, you know, Psalm 130. With you there is forgiveness. He's just looking at what we might consider some of the drier attributes of God. We'll, we'll see how dry they are. They're not. And so this isn't meant to be exhaustive. These aren't the three attributes of God to think about. The point is this. We take God's truth, who he is, and what he has promised, and what he has done, and we think about it deeply. But there's one other thing I want you to note here, and that is how personal this is. Some of the commentaries talk about this as a wonderful exposition of God's omniscience. And God's omniscience, he knows everything. And God's omnipresence, he's everywhere. And God's sovereignty, he's in control of everything. But they, they miss the point. Look at the pronouns. What David does, and this is what's so helpful again, is he directs it all at himself. He's not thinking about God as knowing everything. He's thinking about, in our first point, you can fill in the blank here, we need to remember, the Lord knows all about me. You see, it can get dry and disconnected if all you think about is God knows everything about everything else out there. He does. He does. But what affects David's heart so much and the pattern we have here is God knows everything about me. Let's, let's think about that for a few minutes. God's everywhere I can go. God's totally sovereign over me. And that's another good exercise, because when we think of God and who he is abstracted from ourselves, something out there, it doesn't affect us as much, does it? But we take truth, take truth that you know about God, take the theology that you learn in the books and in the sermons and in tough men classes and Bible studies, and spend some time meditating on what that means to you, how that affects you. 
what that means in relationship to you. And I think you'll find that your heart is affected. The other structural note here, we've got these eight verse sections, is that in general, the first four verses of each section are um, descriptions of God, and the last two verses tend to be personal reflections. So that's sort of the structure. We've got eight, eight verse, six verse, sorry, I said eight, six verse sections. The first four verses being reflective, descriptive, the last two being reflective. And so with that structure, we're going to dive into, remember the Lord knows all about me. And I put the words me instead of you because I want to make this personal. I want you to sit here. I want you to think about this. I want you to meditate. Let's take a few minutes and meditate on the implications that God knows everything about me, about you. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. That, that word for search is really winnowing. It's separating the wheat from the chaff. You, know, you throw the, the wheat up in the air, and the, the, the light husk gets blown away by the wind. The heavy seed drops. It's a sifting. It's a refining process. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. And as we look at this, I just want to highlight three things in this first paragraph. First, the intimacy of his knowledge. God knows everything about me. And I want to focus on the intimacy of his knowledge. You know, the song Dave just sang, the God who rules the universe, the God who calls out the stars by name, knows me intimately. Notice the words in verse 2, you know my thoughts. Verse 3, my paths or ways. Verse 4, every word on my tongue. Notice the intimacy. This isn't some general knowledge. This is, well, how did Jesus say it? The hairs on your head are numbered. God knows you better than you know you. God knows me better than I know me. It is intimate, personal knowledge. This is not a God who is far removed, distant, cold, who's aware of me. This is a God who knows every aspect of my life. The language stacks up. You know, when I rise and when I sit, that, that's pretty exhaustive, right? Um, you discern my thoughts from afar. This, this focusing on just the power of God's sight you're acquainted with all my ways. You search out my path and my lying down. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows what you and I are going to say before we say it. That is how intimately, personally aware of us he is. Don't think of God's omniscience as though he's some giant computer bank who knows everything. God's omniscience is personal omniscience. It is intimate omniscience. The living God, the person of the living God knows everything about you, is concerned about everything about you. The intimacy of his knowledge. I want you to notice the second thing, though. The danger of his knowledge. I'll, I'll spoil a little bit where we're heading, but if, if you look in the final strophe, in the final section, the two big responses of David are... are one, a complete and total loyalty with God. And two, a fear, I'm wicked, I'm sinful. Oh, Lord, search me. 
And so in each one of these meditations, there's encouragement. There's, there's something we're going to see that, that stirs David up to greater loyalty, to greater passion, for greater commitment to the Lord. But in each and every one of these meditations, there's also something that, that helps him think, uh-oh, I need refinement. I need purification. And so that's what I mean by the danger of God's knowledge. I mean, stop and think about it. Tell me you don't get a little uncomfortable when you think God knows everything about me and you. Let's, let's plug in some blanks. That means everything we think. That means everything we say in the car when we get cut off and we think we're alone. That means every link we click on on the internet. He knows every word out of our mouth before we say it. You start to feel the danger of that? That's kind of frightening. You should be frightened. Jesus clearly says in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by their words, you will be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Well, let that sink in. It's kind of alarming. He knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. His knowledge is total, complete. We tend to view ourselves favorably, like we're the center of some sitcom that we star in, and all of our faults are really lovable foibles. And all of our strengths are heroic. God sees it truly as it is. Or another way of saying it, in Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're going to give an account to God, and he knows everything. Absolutely everything about you and me. On the one hand, this great comfort, this intimate knowledge that the God of the universe is thinking of me, the God of the universe takes notice of me. What is man that you're mindful of him, O Lord, the son of man that you give thought to him? And yet there's the other half, which is, uh-oh, he knows everything. Yeah, he knows everything. Thirdly, David wonders and marvels the wonder of his knowledge. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. In verse 5, you hem me in behind and before you, you lay your hand upon me. And, and these notions are going to overlap. We're going to shift from God's knowing everything to the, to the reason in a moment why he knows everything is because he's everywhere. That's why he's aware of everything. And David is, is already beginning to respond with this notion, truly, according to Paul, in him we live and move and have our being. God, God's eye is on us at all times. It notes everything. And so David brings in this picture of being surrounded, hemmed in behind and before with a hand on top. And as he tries to think about this, such knowledge is too wonderful, it is too high, I cannot attain to it. The living God in Isaiah 55 puts it this way, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so one of, the, one of the things we do wrestle with is we are the finite, trying to, comp, trying, to, trying to know, learn about the infinite. And to quote Richard Sibbs, um, we shall never apprehend him 
We shall only apprehend him, but never comprehend him. We will see that he is there, and we will learn something of him, but we will never comprehend him. Which, of course, is the great contrast. God from afar sees everything about me, strips me bare. And yet, I can't attain. I can't even wrap my head around the fact that God knows everything. He knows what I'm going to say before I say it. You say you can take a doctrine like the omniscience of God and spend some time thinking about it practically, and it wells up wonder, and it wells up intimate comfort, and it wells up a certain amount of healthy fear. I better, I better live my life circumspectly since the living God knows everything that I do. Remember, the Lord knows all about me. And that then shifts into consider that the Lord is present all around me. We've already seen notions of this as he brings in spatial concepts in verse 5. Now that's really where we shift. And it's because these things overlap. God knows everything in part because he sees everything in part because he is everywhere. Consider that the Lord is present all around me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. And, and so here now we're, we're shifting to this notion that God is everywhere. God is present everywhere. But that isn't going to affect my heart as much as when I think about he's everywhere I am, which is what David does with this. He personalizes it. This isn't some abstract theological course. You know, is God present on Mars? Why, yes, he is. No, this is, is God everywhere I go? Is there anywhere I can go where I'm more or less in his presence, where I'm more or less seen by him? And it, and it should stun us. Um, Pastor Steve Lawson writes this about this concept. The greatness of God is infinitely vast. His majesty far exceeds man's ability to comprehend him. Consider, for example, the size of the universe that he has created, the sheer dimensions of which are staggering. Scientists tell us it would take 500 billion years to journey around the perimeter of the known universe traveling at the speed of light. So as, as big as we understand the universe to be, and it might be bigger, but as big as we've been able to sort of, okay, it's this big, it would take 500 billion years traveling at the seed, speed of light to do a lap. The sun, let's just move a little closer, the sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles and can hold over 1 million planets the size of Earth. The star Betelgeuse has a diameter of 100 million miles, larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. The galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way, contains hundreds of billions of stars. And astronomers estimate that there are even billions of galaxies, perhaps the number of all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. How immense must God be who as creator far exceeds in size his creation? God fills this creation. And you go from that scope 
of greatness and grandeur. And Job talks about he calls the constellations out and he leads them and he guides the planets in their orbits. And yet David takes this, this, this doctrine of the omnipresence of God and he makes it immensely small and personal. It's stunning. The God who is present in the far reaches of the galaxy, the God who is present in the remotest parts of the known universe is present with me. And so first, let's look at the certainty of his presence. Again, stacking up terms in poetical form is, is to make an emphasis. When he says, if I could go here or there, you are there. If I could go here or there. He's, he's emphasizing this isn't hyperbole. This isn't just a figure of speech. He really is anywhere you could go. Anywhere. First contrast is up or down. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. Well, that's not a big surprise. We'd expect if God's anywhere, he's in heaven. The next one's a bit more surprising. If I make my bed in Sheol, or the place of the dead, you are there. And we're talking in our, my ABF about hell. But according to Revelation 14, those who are tormented in hell are tormented in the presence of the Lamb God is present in hell in judgment. Even there, you don't escape him. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, now we're sort of picturing sort of going as far east or as far west or out to the sea and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. The certainty of his presence. This is a comforting word. There's nowhere you can go, no situation I can be in, you can be in. There is, there is nothing in life that can remove the ever-present God from being at your right hand. He is present. He is present in your distress. He is present in your suffering. He is present in your fear and your danger as much as in your rejoicing. He is present at your deathbed. He is present in the birthing chamber. He is present in the Oval Office, he is present in the throne room of every king on the earth. He is present in planets that we don't even know about yet. And this God, who is so vast and so great, he is present with me, and he's present to an effect, to, to, to lead, David says, and to comfort. That's point B, the comfort of his presence. This isn't just some cold fact. Well, God's present. You know, I, I guess technically he is present. No, he talks about in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. This is shepherding, holding, protection, right? This is the picture Jesus had. None of you are going to slip through my hands. Leading me like a shepherd leads his flock. So it's, it's not just the fact that, that, that God is present, but he's present to shepherd. He's present to lead. He's present to guard. No matter where you go, what danger you face, what trials you are in, the living God is there. Know that. This is the practical application of the omnipresence of God. But if we don't stop and think about that practically, it just becomes a cold fact we know, right? I mean, and we've done this. You try to go comfort someone who's suffering or someone who's fearful. You give them a Bible verse and they say, yeah, 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 I know that. Well, there's plenty of truth we know that we don't think about. And so if you're struggling with fear, if you're struggling with feeling distant from God, take some time. Take some time this afternoon. 
Take some time with a friend and, and spend some time thinking about these things, fleshing it out, unpacking it. What does it really mean to me that God is everywhere I could go? Personalize it and, and see your heart respond. The third thing, though, we see is that, and this is sort of the, the, the convicting or maybe nervous piece, there is no escape from his presence. There is no escape. And David entertains that right, right at the beginning. Where shall I go from your spirit? Maybe part of our knee-jerk reaction to the first point, God knows everything about me. Well, if he knows what I did yesterday, then I kind of want to skedaddle. You can't. You cannot. That point is, again, emphatically made. There's no place too high or too low that you can go. Amos, listen to a similar statement in Amos 2, God talking about judgment. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. When God is set to judge, you can't hide. You can't get away. Or even more intimidating, Revelation 20, 11 and 13. This is just awesome language. Then I saw a great, great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. How great is our God? The created order wants to get away from him. The earth and sky flee, and they have no place to go. What hopes do we have of escape? Then I saw a great right throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead. They didn't escape him there. Death and Hades gave up their dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. There is no escape from his presence. Even in hell, there will be no escape from his presence. People talk about hell being a separation from God. That is true in so much as you are removed from his mercy, you are removed from his loving kindness, you are removed from his patience, you are removed from his salvation. Oh, but he is present in judgment, and he is present in holiness, and he is present in righteousness. The chief terror of hell is the living God not some terrible machine that he made. It's the living God himself, according to Hebrews, who is a consuming fire. And so we can take comfort in the fact that we, we can't escape his hand, but we can also be a little nervous. We can't escape his hand. And all of this, just by taking a truth that you probably most of you could, could have sent to and affirm from some ABF or just from your Bible reading. God is everywhere. And you stop and you think about it, and it starts to work on your heart, starts to work on your emotions, starts to work on your affections, starts to produce a response. But let's move on. Point three, know that the Lord is sovereign over me. I need to know the Lord is sovereign over me. Now we get to the most intimate and, and some of the most wonderful language in Scripture. For Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wondrous are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. And so there's so much here. This is such amazing language. The intimacy of God's control. What we mean by God's sovereignty is he rules actively. God is in control. Understand that. God is in control of everything. God is in control of world leaders. God is in control of the planets in the heavens. God is in control of the weather and the rain. And here, God is in control and he rules over you and me. We take this great universal truth. I mean, he's ordering the movements of stars. And yet, he's also knitting the baby together in the womb. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? So, he is sovereign, point A, over the beginning of my days. Over the beginning of my days. It was the living God and no one other who formed you, who formed me, who created us individually. I, I love the language. He knit, you knit me together in the womb. It, it speaks of craft. It speaks of, of, of wise labor. In, in, in Ephesians, we are his workmanship. He's sovereign of the beginning of my days. He was there. When my body was, when, this is now we're sort of using Hebrew terms to talk about the developing fetus, right? When my unformed substance, well, there was something there. It was still coming together. It was still building and forming. But even there, you knitted me together. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. By the way, notice again the, the overlap of these attributes because God is everywhere and because there's nowhere too deep, even in the mother's belly, you're not hidden from God. He's present. He knows about it, and he's acting. These, these are coming together, God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and God's sovereignty. They, they inform each other. God knows everything because he is everywhere because he is at work in everything. And then you make that personally. Make it about me. The beginning of my days, he tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. This is one of the reasons why we emphatically believe that life begins at conception. These unformed, growing babies are me. You knew me. That was me. That was Jeremiah. And it is a miraculous work of God. It's not simply some biological process. God's saying, I'm doing that. I'm at work there. I'm doing the knitting. Sure, I use bodies and biology to do it, but I'm doing it. And so we say it's holy and it's sacred, hands off. He's sovereign of the beginning of my days. But here, here's the one that's got all of the two settings. He's also sovereign over the end of my days. Jump down to um, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God declares the beginning from the end. But notice what sneaks in there. There's an days, a finite number of days that are ordained for me. And the implication here is I can't do anything about it. Those days were fixed before I was, had day one. Before I stepped into day one to take action, to do anything, before I could show up on the scene and, and you know, act, actualize my reality and, and potential, the days were numbered. 
My days, your days were numbered. There's a limit to our span of life that God has set. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. He does, and he's sovereign over it. And that can be kind of frustrating. That can be kind of scary. What if there aren't many days left in my book? I guess I'm going to have to trust God with that. Sovereign over the end of days. And of course, this is what makes God God, that he, he declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, remember this and stand fast. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former times of old. For I am God and there is no other like me. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. God was intricately and personally and, and immediately involved in forming me. He made me. I'm not a mistake. The way I turned out is purposeful. Maybe there's some features of yourself you're not pleased with. Well, God is the one who knit you together. If you dare, take it up with him. But it also means he's sovereign over the end of days. He knows my days and they're numbered. They're in his book. He's got a plan, but he isn't just claiming responsibility for the beginning. He's claiming responsibility for the end. And that can be humbling. That can even be frightening. Point C. Finally, we see the wonder of his plan. The wonder of his plan. In the last two verses here, David just sort of stops. He's shifting already into the response of his heart. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sands. I wake and I am still with you. He's just at wonder. I mean, think about it. This God who is ordaining and, and ruling everything, the God who is sovereign over the movements of the stars and the galaxies and the movements of bacteria and the creeping of an aphid across the leaf who's ordaining the movement of every snowflake in a blizzard as just as much as the stars in the heavens above, who's at work knitting together a baby in the womb. There's just wonder here. Notice also the contrast in verse 2 and verse 17. In verse 2, from a far distance off, this is how great God is, from a far distance off, he completely sees me. I'm completely exposed. I'm lit up, you know, 22 spotlights on me, just piercing me. He discerns me from afar. He knows everything about me. Verse 17, how precious to me. Now we're going to look at God's thoughts. God's aware of my thoughts. When David turns to think of God's thoughts, he just put, it, it's, it's too much for him. How precious are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Like, I can't comprehend this. I can't fathom how somebody can be both building a baby, ordaining the movement of the stars, rising up of nations, putting leaders into place, swallows falling. It's too much. But that's what the Bible says. This is the God we worship. He's in control. He's in control of our life. Such knowledge is too wonderful. How precious are his thoughts. He's working everything together in Ephesians 1.11 according to a plan. It's not haphazard. It's working together in harmony. And that's just amazing. I have a hard time multitasking one or two things. God is the ultimate multitasker. Working all things together according to his own will. It's astounding. 
This, this reminds me of, of what Paul says in Romans 11. Remember the great, the great doxology at the end of Romans 11 after Paul talks about God's plan of including Israel and grafting them back into the, the olive tree? He says this in Romans 11:33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Know that the Lord is sovereign over me and, and marvel and wonder at his plan. And if you don't understand his plan, that's okay. Many times, I don't understand what he's doing. But I know he's in charge. I know he's in control. And I know he's present. And I know he knows what he's doing. Which then brings us finally to the response. To David's response. And, and what I believe, if we will take the time to meditate on who God is to us, will be our response. Worship the Lord with the response of my heart. Worship the Lord of the response of my heart. And if you're reading this psalm for the first time, you might think this is a sudden right turn here. Like, where do we get this from? We're talking about God. We're talking about who God is to me. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. I mean, when I first read that, that seemed a little odd, a little out of character. Like, suddenly we're playing this song, and all of a sudden we get to like a death metal bit. And I didn't see that change coming out. But I think it does make sense. The logic of this is he begins to pray against God's enemies. It's exactly what he's doing. We're not going to try to sugarcoat this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. Count them my enemies. It's really hard to try to say what David's really saying is that he's just disturbed. No, he hates them. He's pretty clear about that. So how do you explain this? Well, what I think's happening here is as he is thinking about the wonders and the marvelous, incomprehensible greatness of this, this enormous, wise, all-present God, and this enormous, wise, all-present God, he is intimately aware of me, and from before I was born, he's been intimately aware and working. He, he knit me together, and he's walking with me, and his hand's on top of me, and he's going to be with me every step of the way, guiding me and guarding me. And what rises up, and here's your blank, is an absolute love and loyalty for the Lord. Absolute love and loyalty for the Lord. And you know how it feels. You know how it feels when you're loyal to someone and someone else slanders them. If, if you're a husband or a wife or you had a boyfriend or girlfriend and somebody says something about, it's, it's, I don't mind if someone says something negative about me. Well, okay, that's a lie. I do. But <laughs> not nearly so much as if someone speaks ill against my wife. Or for those of you, um, you might have felt that when, when people speak ill of our country, especially if you're in the armed services and you get indignant. Loyalty does that so that you, you, you identify with the other person. An absolute love and loyalty for God. David's, this God is so wonderfully so good to me. And then he thinks, how could other people possibly blaspheme and curse this God who is so good? Oh, Lord, wipe them out. And I know that may seem harsh, but that shows up elsewhere in the Bible in Revelation 6. And this is, this is usually a response, by the way, to people who begin to grasp the greatness and the holiness of God. In Revelation 6, perfected saints under the very throne of God say, 
They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth? You see, when, when people start to grasp the holiness of God, their response is not, Oh God, there's these really nice people. Couldn't you be a little kind? That's not their response. When people start to grasp the holiness, the greatness of God, what they say is, Oh God, how does your judgment tarry? What are you waiting for? Do you see what they're saying? Do you see what they're doing to you? Oh Lord, fix their wagon. That's what they say. There will not be a, a mourning weepers chorus in heaven, eternally mourning the fate of the damned. There will not. We will so see God and His holiness, and our allegiance will be so united with Him that we too, as hard as it may be to believe, will echo these sentiments. Your enemies are my enemies. Your, these are the blanks. His judgments are my judgments. I so identify with you in loyalty and in love. Your judgments are my judgments. You said you're going to judge the earth. I say good. Amen. You've got to be careful here because this can be ugly if it's done with self-righteousness. And it can be ugly if you forget the last two verses of the psalm. But this is right and righteous in context and balance with the last two verses of the psalm. His judgments are my judgments. His enemies are my enemies. I am loyal to the king and his kingdom. And so the enemies of the king and the enemies of his kingdom are my enemies. And again, this is, a, this is a tough balance because there are enemies and yet we love them and we're trying to reach them with the gospel. But you know how it feels. You, you see what's going on in Iraq. You see what's going on in the world. And there's a part of you, and it's right, that says, God, smack them. Stop it. Intervene. Defend the widow and the orphan. Come down and judge the earth in righteousness. And yet we can pray for those very same people who would be judged. Oh, Lord, would your gospel go out to them? Would you open their eyes? There's a tension. Paul speaks of it with Israel. He says, for the, the, the enemies of the cross, and yet for the sake of the fathers, they're beloved. David is so consumed with love and loyalty of the Lord that he adopts the Lord's judgments as his judgments, and the Lord's enemies are his enemies. But you need the other half. If you just stop there, you get self-righteous. And, and you start moving in the direction of Westboro Baptist. And we don't want to go there. We do not want to go there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, I think what comes into David's mind last of all is he gets so indignant about God's enemies as he gets so boiled up about those who would dare to take God's name in vain, who would dare to defy him, is that, you know, sometimes I do that. I mean, I may not curse him overtly, but in my heart, and he knows my thoughts, you know, what are these people guilty of up here? Um, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Because, of course, I've never done that, right? Um, I've never resisted and rebelled against God. No, I know better, and he knows better, and we've just recounted how he knows better, and I can't get away from him. And so, as David is 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 culminating in this loyalty and just passion for God and his cause, the thought enters his mind, you, you could make an argument at times that I'm God's enemy. And now we come full circle. 
he's now filled with an absolute longing for personal holiness. The two results of this meditation are an absolute love and loyalty for the Lord and an absolute longing for personal holiness. We see this in two points. First, inviting God's winnowing, winnowing, that sifting process. What started out as a theological truth, I know this is true, God knows everything about me, becomes a prayer. Because of what I've just thought about God, because of what's coming for his enemies, oh Lord, I don't want to be your enemy. Oh Lord, I don't want to provoke you. Oh Lord, I don't want to be one of those who takes your name in vain. So, oh Lord, would you please sift me? Would you please separate those parts from me that displease you and purify me? Oh Lord, would you show me those parts that are displeasing to you so I can repent and change? Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me. And of course, I know there is. This isn't an if. Well, maybe there won't be. I'm kind of hoping. No, of course there is. Of course there is. And this, I think, balances off the danger of the self-righteousness of the previous verses. Because, of course, even while we are indignant and angry at the sin in the world, we remember we are sinners too. So, yeah, am I, am I indignant about some of the things I'm seeing taking place in Iraq? Yes, I am. And there but the grace of God go I. And there but the grace of God go you. And so the final, we, we starts off, oh, Lord, you have searched me too. Oh, Lord, search me. Inviting God's winnowing and seeking God's shepherding. And that's where it ends. Show me if there's any grievous way in me and lead me. That's sheep talk. Lead me. Won't you lead me? Won't you guide me? Won't you direct me? I don't want to direct myself. I don't want to call the shots. I don't want to be the boss. Lead me in the way everlasting. Theology is meant to be incredibly practical. If it's not practical, if theology can just be pie in the sky, that's our fault, not theology's fault. And here's how you make it practical. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example that you give for us in it. Lord, help us not to be people who know things only, but help us to be people who meditate on truth, who embrace truth, who are changed and affected by truth. Oh, Lord God, well up within us a love and a loyalty for you and well up within us a longing for personal holiness. Lord, we rejoice that you are with us, that you know us, that your hand is upon us, that you lead us and that you guide us, that you formed us and you are walking with us. Give us this response to our hearts that would be fitting and appropriate and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.